Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Today, we have the Wall Street wonder, Matt Levine. Matt's Bloomberg column, Money Stuff, has become the must-read for most of my finance friends, most of the finance community. It's that rare place where you get laughter, you get learning, and you get complex topics. During the conversation, we talked with Matt about his ability to translate those complex topics, how his early legal career at Wachtla Lipton and then his banking career at Goldman Sachs have played a role in his success. And we just cover a ton of topics in terms of what's going on in the markets today, the overall regulatory structure, some very abstract questions. Please enjoy this conversation with Matt Levy. Matt, pumped to have you here. Thanks for joining us. We were kicking around where to start. And one of the things that we thought would be fun is just focusing on the regulatory efficiency of markets today versus history over the past 30, 40 years, however long that you've been paying attention to markets. You write about meme stocks, crypto, everything is securities fraud. It feels like things are very chaotic in that particular realm right now. How do you think all this compares to the questionable dark arts of yesteryears? Gosh. So I feel like the biggest part of that, just intellectually and like for what in terms of what I write about, is crypto. Crypto feels in a lot of ways like very much a rehash of the 1920s, where you have potentially world-changing companies raising money with very little regulation, and you have tons and tons of frauds drafting alongside them. And the upshot of that in the 1920s was a market crash and the very concerted effort to impose regulation on the stock market that I think there was some opposition at the time, but I think in hindsight, pretty much everyone agrees that worked really, really well. Not only in terms of there was somewhat less fraud in the stock market, but also in terms of the American capital markets became incredibly big and liquid and deep and a huge competitive advantage because we had this well-regulated, disclosure-focused stock market. And then in crypto, there was people saying there were world-changing innovations. There was tons and tons of fraud drafting alongside that. And there was a market crash and a series of people losing their shirts in fraudulent businesses. And now we're at the 1929 moment. And I don't know what happens. One possibility is the same thing. The Congress passes laws saying this is how we're going to regulate crypto. And crypto becomes this well-regulated, transparent industry. And there's some push for that. There are congressional efforts to pass bespoke crypto regulation. Another possibility is the SEC has been saying for years now, sometimes more, sometimes less loudly, but they've been saying for years now that crypto is a form of securities markets and it is already regulated as under the securities laws. And if that's right, then 
it means that a lot of the stuff that's been happening is impossible to do legally in the U.S. because it's all, there are these disclosure rules that are written for companies issuing stock and they don't really work for decentralized whatever's issuing crypto whatever's. And then crypto is illegal in the U.S. So that's a push-pull right now. And I don't know, it's really interesting. One reason it's interesting for me is I'm writing about a lot of stuff that was a standard playbook of securities fraud from 20 or 30 or 100 years ago that got wiped out by the securities regulations, but is arguably, questionably, maybe legal in crypto stuff. So that's really interesting to me. But then away from that, in like the actual securities markets, I don't know. I think the meme stock episode has been really interesting, but not really regulatorily interesting. It's like people decided to buy stocks at irrational prices and they had their fun. And I think there are a lot of people pushing the SEC to find a problem with that. And the SEC is like, yeah, they're allowed to do that. The other thing that I think is interesting in like this broad regulatory environment is I've written a lot about, I sometimes use the tag, private markets are the new public markets. There's been just a lot of stuff, a lot of dollar volume of fundraising, also just a lot of media attention, a lot of popular interest in democratization of private markets too. Yeah, I was going to say in companies that 10 or 20 years ago would be public companies, but they're now private companies. That's like a de-democratization. That's like all these companies that would have been public are now private. And so then you have a push to democratize private markets so that people can get back into those companies. And there's a lot of regulatory interest around that on one side about democratizing and opening up to more investors. But on the other hand, the SEC looking to regulate even the institutional side of that market more strictly because it's just more central to the capital markets than it used to be. Given where you sit and what you do in finance, if we could airdrop you into any nook of finance and to see what's happening on the inside and really the truth, if you like, where would you want to go? This is not like a good answer for my program of writing about <laughs> interesting things. This is just my personal answer. I've always wanted to be a flow trader for like a week. Wow. Did not expect this answer. <laughs> no, because I've never done it. It's so alien to my experience. I've done other stuff and I have a handle on what bankers and lawyers and private equity guys do. But the lifestyle of sitting on a desk and quoting CDS all day just seems like a very different category of person for the people I know. And I just find that very interesting. I was always interested to talk to the flow traders when I was a banker. And it's something I don't do and never did. And I'm a little afraid of it. I think it'd be fun. The other thing I'd say is on the other side of the world, I love weird structured stuff. And I got my start in financial journalism in 2010 or something. It's 2011. And one thing that was nice is that there was a lot of stuff coming out of the financial crisis that was getting litigated. Over my first few years, we'd reached statutes of limitations on financial crisis behavior and cases would be brought. And so you'd get to read the details of transactions that I think were very opaque to people outside of the people doing them in 2007. So you get to read about how synthetic CDO squares worked. That was just really interesting. It was interesting because there are allegations of fraud and there was all these conflicts and all this stuff that was contested. It was also just interesting to see how that sausage got made. And I feel like there is interesting sausage being made in all sorts of structuring businesses right now that is not necessarily available to me or the public. I'm always fascinated to read about bank capital relief trades where like banks are making deals with hedge funds or insurers or whatever to basically reduce the capital requirements on their balance sheet by doing weird structured derivatives. Or like, I'm interested in the private credit model of tranching your loans in order to get better insurance ratings treatment. There's all this stuff that goes on that's really interesting to me that I don't get to see because it's meant to be private. And so I'd love to work at a hedge fund that does capital relief trades or something and just see how that sausage is being made because I think that's cool. In terms of that shadow system that exists, 
do you have any access to that? You mentioned there's the public filings, which I think are available to everyone. But now that you're more ingrained into the industry from a public perspective, and there's people that know you, and I think most people, when they see something like this, they would think to themselves, I would love to hear Matt's thoughts on this specifically. So I'm just curious, do things like that cross your desk? Yeah, but not in a systematic, easily publicly available way. And I'm not hugely in the business of breaking news about stuff that's secret. But every stuff, I mean, I certainly get investment memos that are not public, but I don't get it in the same comprehensive way that I would if like, the SEC was bringing cases or if it was publicly filed. I guess a follow-up question to that is, Everyone talks about you in our industry. And when you join the industry and you ask people what you should be reading, your name comes up in your newsletter. But I've always wondered how many people would talk to you about your stuff, whether there's just as well that talks about you and then you're just sat there producing this stuff or whether you'd actually have a direct relationship with many of your readers. It's somewhere in between. I certainly talk to people. People talk to me. But a good portion of my output consists of me reading publicly available stuff and then thinking thoughts about it. Every so often, people who are involved in a situation will call me and tell me about the situation. And I just try to be very careful not to be like channeling them and to just follow my own curiosity and say my own opinion rather than listen to someone who sounds smart and be like, yep, what he said. <laughs> There's going to be some bias. I am curious in terms of the companies that you actually write about and the market players, maybe individuals, you know, you've written a lot about Elon and different things. Do you hear from them? And I'm targeting the either hate mail category or maybe some, I respect you, even if you're writing about me in a poor way. Do you hear much from those people in the market? I don't want to talk about specific people because sometimes I hear from people off the record. That answers the question, I think. <laughs> people often ask me that question to be like, do you hear from Elon? And I don't want to imply that I hear from Elon. <laughs> we all hear from Elon on a pretty regular basis. I don't think you should assume that I hear from Elon. But in general, I think when people are grumpy with me, they tend not to call me for the most part. Every so often I hear that someone is grumpy with me, but not from them. But no, I'm very pleased by like how often, my particular favorite is often I'll write about someone who's been arrested for insider trading. And when they get out of prison, they'll email me and be like, yeah, you got me. That was funny. Like, okay. <laughs> you have a nice sense of humor about this. No, like, I often find that people who I am gently critical of take it in a good way and have substantive responses, but have a sense of humor about it too. I don't feel like I go around with a lot of people hating me, I hope. No, quite the opposite, I would assume. I worry a little about Elon. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of industries being regulated, we've had this really interesting dynamic recently where you have everything that I grew up as a child that was illegal is now legal, sports gambling and marijuana. And it always seems like those industries tend to be the most interesting with the amount of money that's flying into them, the amount of fraud that goes on. And I'm just wondering, is there anything to that in your mind in terms of the most interesting things to write about seem to be those that are either regulated a little bit more lightly, or once they become overly regulated, like the public equity markets, it's almost like completely different in terms of how much you hear about it. And even you compare that to what you mentioned before with the venture markets. So where do you stand on that just in terms of unregulated industries offering the most interesting things to be written about in terms of money things. Again, for me, like the purest example of that is crypto, which is not unregulated, but it's contested how regulated it is. And it's just people getting up to nonsense all the time. One thing I love is I think 50 years ago, you would have said insider trading is a concept that applies to the stock market. I think this is true. It's judge-made law that is interpretations of the security statutes. But I think over time, people have internalized that norm of fairness. And so now they think insider trading law applies to lots of other markets 
when Amazon was talking about building its second headquarters in New York and people like bought up land around where they were going to build it because they had inside tips. People were like, they should go to prison. Sports gambling, there are constant fascinating stories about more or less insider trading in sports gambling markets. And it's interestingly contested how and why that might be legal or illegal. And now that it is such a big business, it used to be like the regulation of insider trading and sports gambling was some combination of bookies wanted some of it because they wanted their lines to be informed and bookies didn't want too much of it and they'd have you murdered if you did it to them. But now it's this like big legal quasi-regulated business. And I don't think it's very clear what insider trading is allowed in sports markets and people have strong opinions about it. And if you do it too egregiously, some prosecutors definitely going to want to go after you. But to me, the law is not super clear or not always. This comes through in your writing, but I've also heard you talk about this concept of being a defender of finance in some ways, where mainstream media thinks anything that happens in finance and banking specifically is because bankers are evil and inherently want trying to pull one over on the world. And you're there to explain why most of the stuff that you see is pretty logical from a capitalist standpoint anyway. Yeah, let me push back on that too. One is that that was definitely <laughs> how I felt when I started because I was a banker and I was like, I'm going to write about this from the perspective of someone who's been a banker. And over time, I've just been acculturated to media. My identity is like more of a media person and less of an investment banker. I worry and or I'm pleased that I've lost a little bit of that edge. The other thing I'd say is the example I always like to use is that I did a type of derivative trade called the call spread overlay. doesn't really matter what it was, but every so often it shows up very rarely. It shows up in the media and people are like, oh, a complicated derivative. Goldman must be like putting one over on its <laughs> client. And I'm like, no, no, no. I know what we were doing. We were teaming up with the client to put one over on the IRS. Not really. It was all legal, but it was basically you could push this button and get a ton of tax benefits that were not economically justified, but were legal. And you'd get these tax benefits and you'd say the client can have half of them and Goldman will have the other half and we'll all be happy about it. And I always tell that story to journalists because I'm like, if you assume that everything going on here is a zero-sum adversarial fraud where the sophisticated parties are screwing the unsophisticated parties, you're missing the actual complexity, which you might not like any better, but it's more interesting than the simplistic story of bankers defrauding clients. I like the idea that there's never just two people in a transaction. There's always a third person and it's the government. And if you view it as a pie, the government can sometimes take the least amount from the pie. I'm not sure that's always true, but I think it's almost always true in big complex transactions. Often it's tax, but we're talking about bank capital relief trades. A lot of what's going on is a bank is willing to lose some money on a trade because they get valuable capital relief. Where does that value come from? The government? but it's like increasing the expectation of future financial bailouts. It's like a fascinating source of value. But yeah, I think that I think about it as, as a derivative structure. When you read a textbook on derivatives, there's this purely economic motivation that motivates them in textbooks. You have some probabilistic risk and you're hedging that risk by buying some thing that pays off in certain states of the world. And what I did, the clients rarely thought very much about that. They were like, oh, the tax benefits oh, the accounting for this is so much better. There's a lot more levers than just the straightforward market risk stuff in the world. And it helps to understand the sorts of quasi-economic motivations that people have to do transactions because they're interesting and there's just a lot of pieces to the financial world. If you put aside physical commodities and you just focus on financial securities and the derivatives around those financial securities, are derivatives around financial securities a net positive for society? Sure. <laughs> My gut sense is if you looked at what all of those things are, 
the overwhelming majority of them is interest rate hedging. And that's probably a net positive for society. Feels okay. It's possible that most of what you read about is single name or zero day equity call options. And I don't know, that strikes me as a substitute for sports gambling and not great, but it's fine. And I got to like pound the table to defend zero day options. They seem fun, whatever, people do what they want. But I think there's probably positive social value in interest rate hedging. Yes. My general rule is if it lowers the overall cost of capital for the broader economy, that can be viewed as a general positive and liquidity in the system does that. But once you start to get zero day options, it starts to get into the, maybe this is legalized gambling. We should probably move, given that we're cool making media onto the more media side of what you do. And actually, the first question that you brought up springs to my mind is, how do you think of yourself now? Are you a writer, a media man, an investment person who writes? How would you describe yourself? The short, straightforward answer is a columnist or a blogger. The aspirational answer, I thought I would say that I want to be like an art critic for financial deals. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> the thing that I want to do is I have a aesthetic appreciation for stuff that happens in financial markets. And I think it's fun and interesting and cool and can be examined through a almost aesthetic lens. And I want to convey that to people. I want to grab people and be like, look at this deal. It's so weird. And that feels like art criticism more than anything else. So yeah, I don't put it in my Twitter bio or whatever that I'm an art critic, but that is how I, on a good day, conceive of the mission. I like that. It's catchy. It would be a good slogan for the Twitter bio. When you look at where you've basically moved across your career, big name institutions, then you went somewhat into the independent blogging world, even though I would consider Dealbreaker was an institution that very much so. Dealbreaker is an institution, yeah, but it's a small, weird one, <laughs> but beloved. A unique <laughs> one, but with a very strong history, yes. Now at Bloomberg, and everyone, I think over the past few years, talks about everyone as a media company and every business is a media business. But I think with Bloomberg, this is a little bit more natural. It has a little bit more history and a little bit more actual credibility when saying that. But how do you attach yourself to the actual business of Bloomberg? And when you think about yourself as representative of what might happen in the future, do you expect that to be more common where you have individuals who are their own brands that are basically representing a much bigger business like Bloomberg and a piece of their overall system? Yeah, I think that transition has largely happened. And he'll talk about it a lot at the New York Times, where the New York Times was this institution with this incredible brand and a bunch of anonymous people there. And like everyone was subsumed by the brand. And then it's almost one-to-one -one tied with Twitter. Although also podcasting and other things, people became their own personal brands and became to some extent bigger than the Times. And there was a real difficult adjustment period where a lot of these people are like, we have big personal followings. We want to be freed from the strictures of the traditional way that the Times treated its employees. We want more money. We want to go independent. And I think the Times adjusted and is now in a world where they have stars and the stars are comfortable in the, the Times ecosystem. And I'm saying the Times because they're the most prominent way the story is played out, but I think it's true everywhere. I think that there is now a Twitter-driven, podcast-driven, whatever-driven expectation that a lot of journalists are their own brands in some way. But there's also now an understanding that they can get a lot of value from being attached to a bigger company and a bigger brand. And the big companies and brands are better at working with the journalists as their own brands. I think five years ago, I would have said there's a big tension there. And I think there's less of a tension now because people have worked out how it works. And I don't have a good explanation for how it works. It's just people 
you live with it. I think there was a time when journalistic organizations would very carefully police the Twitter statements of their big name journalists. And then they were like, okay, we're going to relax on that a little bit. But also the big name journalists were like, okay, we're not going to tweet terrible stuff anymore. There's not like a big answer where like someone solved the problem as far as I know. It's just people like sawed off some of the edges and learned to accommodate each other a little bit. It definitely feels like the pendulum has swung where the individuals have more power in the relationship now and they can be their own brands. Yeah. Although sitting in it, I would have said the pendulum swung very far in that direction and then has swung back a little bit. And it's now a lot of people went independent, came back and a lot of journalists pushed back a little bit less on their Twitter policies and swung a little bit back towards the big organizations, I think. Oh, yeah. I think some people realize the grass isn't always greener and there's some benefits to having infrastructure around you as well. And there's also just, it's a cyclical thing where like in a booming economy, there was money to be raised and there's money on Substack that is maybe a little bit less there than there was two or three years ago. How do you think about individuals when it comes to IP? There's this concept that I think it's really interesting. You look around at individuals that have built up big followings for corporations and then they just jump elsewhere. And that's not entirely new. But there is this challenge in terms of if I'm going to invest in this individual and I think they're going to be the brand, I don't know, you would know better than me in terms of that construct doesn't really exist in the court system, I don't think, in terms of buying equity in a human being or having some stake in the IP that comes out of them. Is that something that will ever evolve in the future? Because it seems to me like the incentives are very easy to align short term, but very hard to align long term. And corporations have a lot of money to figure this stuff out. But I wonder from you sitting where you are with the legal background and the structuring background, how you think about that? I try not to. <laughs> Bloomberg runs my IP and like, I'm pretty, I say my IP, things like the name money stuff and like my existing columns. The words. In a broader sense, I own my name. And you will capture the value from that in the future in theory. A lot of the value that I've jointly created with Bloomberg is sunk in like Bloomberg owned IP and I'm comfortable with that because I like Bloomberg and I feel like they treat me well. And I think other people, uh, other places have had worse stories about that and have painfully parted with their IP. And I think other people have had good experience. I sometimes listen to people who like amicably leave their big media organization to go out on their own and keep a lot of their IP. So I don't know. I think the big media organizations have some interest in maintaining goodwill with writers. But I really don't think about it that much. I really do like working for a company and I feel like they treat me well, so I'm not scheming for how to own my IP. But I think that like it doesn't make me that hard a problem, but I think people do. The thing that you have as an individual creator is you don't necessarily own things like your back catalog or the title under which you released your work, but you own yourself and probably your personal Twitter following. So like you have enough to get started. I think it's interesting. The demise of Twitter, and it really has gone downhill as a media gathering place and promotional place. The demise of Twitter, I think, makes it a lot harder on if you were like a star at a big publication and you're like, I'm about to go out on my own. And then Elon Musk took over Twitter, like your personal value went way down because your ability to promote yourself to people who would want to buy your stuff has gone down, I think. Twitter is this weird ecosystem because a lot of people are publishing a lot of good content for free that Twitter monetizes, but it's also Twitter provided this incredible distribution platform to a lot of people that it's now they're going to nickel and dime you for, you can't really use it anymore. So, On Twitter specifically, and I often flip-flop on this, do you think we spend too much time on thinking about Twitter or actually Twitter's cultural significance means that we should be spending the amount of time we do talking about Twitter? 
think like my experience may be atypical here, but I think its cultural <laughs> significance has gone way down and we spend less time thinking about it. People spend a lot of time talking about what's happened to Twitter and people spend a lot of time talking about Twitter, like the entity, the business, the site. But I think compared to a year or two ago, they've spent less time thinking about the stories happening on Twitter. Twitter as like a driver of interest in stories has gone down and Twitter as its own story has gone up a little bit. But I think two years ago, it would have been very easy to say, and everyone said it, and I probably said it too, that journalists were much too focused on what people on Twitter thought, what was news on Twitter, what was interesting, what Twitter saw as important, and were too little focused on everything happening outside of Twitter, meaning both in the real world and also like on TikTok. Twitter was central to the culture that journalists cared about, but it was not necessarily central to all of human culture or like American culture or whatever. But now its significance to culture has declined, and I think its significance to journalists has declined even faster. People are just not as interested in what's the main character on Twitter these days. What's most significant to journalists today, or what's least replaced Twitter in that block? Nothing. I don't know. The real world? You think people are out there? If you asked 50 years ago, what's most significant to journalists? It's like, I don't know, news. Stuff they find out about. Scandals and stories and peels and whatever. It's like the whole stuff of the world. For a while, Twitter was the focal point where it was the easiest place to get a sense of what's news, what people are interested in. And so it became too easy. And so people were too focused on it. And I think it has certainly died without a replacement. Sorry, it hasn't died, but its significance has gone down a lot. And it's not like there's a one-for-one -one replacement. It's not like, oh, everyone went to Blue Sky or whatever. People went to a bunch of places, but the sum of X and Blue Sky and Threads and Mastodon is less than where Twitter was two years ago. And if we draw the link back to your writing, there's a few topics in the world that you operate in that it feels like you're tethered to. And Elon for a long time was that. You famously kept trying to take holidays and he kept doing stuff to break those holidays. How does that feature in the things that you write? Obviously, you kind of have license to talk about anything. But when that stuff comes up, do you feel like, oh, I can't, I just don't want to write about that thing again, but I feel like I have to? Or actually, do you feel pretty unshackled? Mostly that is a bit and I enjoy... The Elon Twitter stuff was great because before I was a banker, I was an M&A lawyer. I thought about remedies and M&A agreements. And like no one thinks about that. The normal way a merger agreement works is you sign the merger agreement, it has 70 pages of what happens if things go wrong, and then nothing goes wrong and you close six months later. And the lawyers hotly negotiate those 70 pages just in the rare occasion when things go wrong. And then when things do go wrong, as a journalist now, things do go wrong. You're like, oh, this ball bearings company is not closing its merger and no one cares. But then... Elon's not closing his merger with Twitter. It's front page news. I'm like, oh, I get an excuse to write about this really interesting thing through the lens of this crazy guy. It's fascinating. It's, I love it. I was very happy to write about Elon. Sometimes I was sad to be up on that writing about Elon on a family vacation, but my job is not that grueling. So no, usually when that stuff happens, it's one, I got to write a column every day. It's nice to have a thing to write about that people will be interested in, that people will click on, and that to some extent, I know I'm going to be able to write something. And the situations that I find myself tethered to are ones that I find interesting. I'm tethered to stuff not because I get assigned. Like I'm tethered to stuff because I write about this stuff and people are like, oh, I want to hear what you have to say about the next development in this Elon drama. And so I'm like, okay, well, I got to do that. But it's, I got to do that because it's the thing I'm interested in. I'm totally tethered to everything is securities fraud, which is the shtick idea about companies being sued for random stuff that has nothing to do with their like financial statements or financial results, but gets characterized as securities fraud. And so people constantly send me those stories. And I constantly write about them. And to some extent, I feel tethered to it. But I'm also like, I think this is a really interesting shtick. I'm putting together this thesis on 
what I think is a really interesting development in American markets and law. And each data point for that thesis is fun and interesting for me and an easy way to fill the column. The hard one, and I hate to come back to it because I hate to come back to it, but it's crypto. I have written a lot about the collapses of crypto firms and shenanigans in DeFi markets and particularly the contours of how crypto is or is not a security. And so when news happens in those areas, I feel like I have to write about it. And I'm often interested in writing about it, but I'm sick of it. And a lot of my readers are sick of it. And that's a tough balance where I'm like, sorry, guys, it's a crypto one. I don't like it either, but there's big crypto news. I got to write about it. So that one, I feel a little bit tethered to. But in general, the things I'm tethered to are the things that I like and find interesting. I'm not really tethered to Elon. I'm tethered to aspects of Elon, but I don't have to write about every silly thing he does. If he like breaches a merger agreement, I'm going to write about that. We haven't talked about SPACs at all, which were also a big theme over the past five years. And humorous, just because of the cycle, I can specifically remember looking at a DSPAC deal back in 2018, maybe. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know they still do these anymore. They're still around. And then sure enough, they came back in a very big way. I feel like I knew about SPACs, I don't know, as a lawyer or a banker or something. I had a vague idea of how they worked. And it's one of those things you're like, oh, I'll file this away as like a bit of markets trivia that I know. One thing that's been nice in my career is I know little bits of market trivia and then they like suddenly become relevant. So one thing is I was a convertible bond banker and I knew a little bit about death spiral convertibles. And knowing a little bit about death spiral convertibles was incredibly helpful in the Bed Bath & Beyond situation, which they didn't exactly do a death spiral convertible, but it's the same muscles. Looks like a duck, quacks like a duck. But then it was really helpful algorithmic stablecoins and Luna and Terra and like all the crypto stuff. Again, you're applying the lessons of traditional finance. I've written for years about market structure, payment for order flow stuff. And that has a very intense audience of 30 people. And they're really interested in it. And I read about it almost as a service to them because no one else will. And then like Robinhood and GameStop happened. And everyone's like, oh my God, payment for order flow. I'm like, yep, I got you. But anyway, sorry, I interrupted. But yeah, SPACs, piece of financial trivia that I know a little bit about. And then it's like, oh, it's in the news. Do you think there's any, as years go on, I think there was a lot of guidance given around what these businesses would look like and how they would do. There was a lot of promotional materials that was made that didn't have to go through the traditional SEC process. So maybe that's all the point. But do you think there's any fallout from that and litigation, any of these things? From your perspective, what happens to that whole boom that went on for several years? And it's just mind boggling to think about. I do think the fallout is primarily that the thing you said about they put out projections that don't have to go to the traditional SEC process has ended or will end. The SEC has said, nope, it's an IPO. I think that there's a lot of structural stuff in SPACs. There's a lot of hand-wavy interest in it, but it doesn't really matter. I think that the best case for SPACs is that it used to be relatively easy for a company to go public. You could go public when you're relatively small and not raise very much money. And over time, the public company costs have gotten higher and the ticket size for IPO investors has gotten higher. And so it is harder to go public as a smallish, somewhat speculative company. And the SPAC is a way to fix that or a way to open up public markets to somewhat smaller and more speculative companies. And we talked about earlier with private markets becoming more dominant and people wanting to democratize private markets. At some very high level, SPACs are a way to democratize private markets by taking companies public that otherwise wouldn't have gone public. And that idea is interesting and I think valid. And a lot of stuff with SPACs just turned out to be wrong. 
there's stuff like people really made claims that SPAC was a cheaper way to go public because it didn't involve paying an underwriter or an IPO pop. And that was always insane. And I kept writing about how insane that was. And no one says that anymore because it's insane. I think there was talk about SPACs being a way to pull forward IPOs. So it's like the IPO market is hot right now. We're going to do a bunch of SPACs. We're going to have all this money. And then when the IPO market cools off, all that money will take new companies public. So we're pulling forward demand for IPOs into the high demand area and be able to take companies public later. That was totally wrong. Totally wrong. All those SPACs just couldn't get their deals done and they all had withdrawals. It turns out people are not stupid. And if they wanted to do an IPO in 2020 and they didn't want to do it in 2022, they just took their money out of the SPAC. So it was totally wrong. So stuff like that was completely wrong. And then some structural stuff of the warrants are like free money for hedge funds is true. So people, I think, understand that SPACs are riskier. They understand that SPACs, the economics are not as great for retail investors or for companies as they thought. But the basic idea of we're going to take a company public in a way that slightly makes it easier to take a smaller and more speculative company public. I think in his heart of hearts, Gary Gensler hates that and wants companies to be less speculative and is trying to crack down on that. But the core of that idea is not a terrible one. And the way that works is the sponsor of a SPAC and the pipe investors in the SPAC are vouching for the DSPAC company in a way that an underwriter doesn't really. I think you have this model in like the 50s or whatever, where like the investment bank underwriting on IPO is like, this is a good company and it is worth the price you're paying for it. And then you're like, oh, I trust Goldman. So I'm going to buy this IPO. And that's just, no one thinks that anymore. No one is like, oh, the price in this IPO was set by Goldman because they believe in the company. It's not a thing anymore. But with a SPAC, the sponsor has weird incentives, but the pipe investors are like, yeah, they're paying this price for the company. So they must believe in it. And they're like BlackRock or whatever. So there's some vouching for smaller companies that I think is an interesting dynamic that probably still makes sense, but it's just a lot harder to do now because the SEC does have us cracked down and because there are a lot of failures. And so like the market for that has cooled a lot. As topics come up on a daily basis that pique your interest, some I'm sure or many will be right in your wheelhouse and you can just pick them up, read the public filings and then write something about them. But I'm sure there are certain topics that come up that you think are interesting, but you need further research to just confirm actually what's going on or just to help brush your own knowledge up. What's your process in those situations? What are you going to? Are you generally calling people up? Are you going into old dusty books? How do you go through that process? It's rarely literally dusty books, although not never. I have a couple of books I build down. So I'm out of Googling PDFs, reading research notes. But a lot of it is my thoughts about the public filings or whatever. I'm not doing tons of off-the-record research on multiple topics every day or whatever, but there's two kinds of answers. One is I am calling the people involved. There's some case involving some bank and I call the banks like PR person like, hey, can you tell me about this? And then there's some amount of I'm calling people I know who are closer to that space and who are not involved and saying, this looks weird. Tell me about this. And those are people who I've talked to over the years and who I trust as interlocutors who are like smart and interested and knowledgeable about the space and also not talking their book about. They're a little bit removed from the particular situations. But then also particular situations. I talk to the people involved in particular situations and get them to talk their book. But as I said earlier, I'm very hesitant about channeling anyone. My first choice is not to like talk to all the people involved and be like, this is their side. You referenced a bit about how you decide what to write about. But I'm just thinking when you think about a topic where you have 30 dedicated readers versus something that's very in the moment versus something like crypto, where some people get so pissed off when you write about it or talk about it, I'm sure. How do you approach that in terms of strategy? Is there a strategy involved? Is it personal interest? How do you balance, okay, I want to keep this going. I want to see this. This is what's most interesting to me. 
it's mainly personal interest because I just feel like the stuff that I'm interested in is the stuff that I can write interesting things about. My experience has been that I have a lot of readers whose like interest patterns map well to mine. If I'm like, here's this really weird thing that no one else has written about and that has nothing to do with anything, but is really weird and interesting. A lot of people are like, oh, that's really weird and interesting, right? It'll do well. So when did that specifically emerge? That's something we've been talking about internally where Patrick, who hosts Invest Like the Best, he can talk about some of these things that are really out on the frontier and people just trust him. They want to hear him talk to people about it. I'm curious if there was a moment about when you started to feel like, okay, no matter where I go, I have these dedicated readers that map out to what I'm interested in. I think that my first week at DealBreaker, I was trying to like write jokes about topics that were in the news. And then like at some point I wrote about some weird, complicated derivative trade because I was like, well, this is only something I'm interested in. No one else cares about it. And people are like, oh, that's the one I want. Oh, okay. <laughs> Very early on, my sense was that there is an expectation that weird, complicated niche topics have only weird niche audiences. And that doesn't seem true. I think about my readers. Some of them are people who work in fairly technical areas of finance and are like, finally, I get to read about this fairly technical area. Or like, I get to read about this adjacent technical area of finance that I find interesting because I work in a different technical area and I like technical stuff. A lot of my readers work in tech and are like, I don't care anything about finance. I have no background in finance. I'm not that interested in it. But I like when you talk about complicated things, it's like the aesthetic appreciation of systems and complexity and the moving parts of the like, economic drivers of deals. My impression is that there are a lot of people in the world who like want to read about structures and there is not a lot of writing about them. <laughs> so they're like, oh, great. I get to read about a derivative. Fabulous. So I don't know. That's sort of the answer to your question. If I get to explain a complicated thing, this is going to be fine. Like this is going to be good. <laughs> so. And how are you assessing the performance of your staff? Is it based on anecdotal, how many people are reaching out to me to say, I really enjoyed that or finding feedback on the stuff that you've written? Are you close to the analytics? Are you looking at how much the newsletter is growing? The short answer is I try not to assess the performance of my stuff. My assessment is that they keep employing me. The longer answer is I recognize that I did just say some things do well. And then the answer is mostly anecdotal. It used to be Twitter feedback. Now it's email feedback, a little bit of Twitter, a little bit of threads, a little bit of just six months later when someone mentions something. Oh, I like that piece. I would not say that I have any sort of systematic. I used to get my open rates and I don't anymore. Join Hollywood on their strike, keeping you from the numbers. <laughs> I don't think there's any intention involved, but I stopped getting it and I don't really want it. So it's fine. That's what Netflix said too. It is easy for me to see terminal readership, number of people on the Bloomberg terminal who read a thing. And so I'm interested in that. What percentage do you think comes from terminals? I don't know if I'm supposed to say. So I won't, but I would say like... So like 80%, really? I would say that <laughs> the, and I don't really know, but I would say the pretty large majority of my readership comes from the email. So when I say terminal, I mean, it's like published on the terminal, separate from the email. You can like be a terminal user and get the email, but you can also just read it on the terminal. And that is a smaller audience than the people who sign up. The terminal is expensive. The email is free. So like the email audience is larger, but obviously I don't want to say lower value, but they're paying less for it. <laughs> and they're less likely to be directly involved in high-powered finance roles. One thing that I'm just personally curious on, and you complete the fifth on this one, but it's just whether you have performance reviews from Bloomberg and whether they're just like, keep writing or whether there's anything more nuanced to it than that. Because from the outside, it seems like, yeah, Matt does great stuff. We'll just leave him to it and he'll publish something pretty much every day and that'll be it. Probably shouldn't talk about my performance reviews specifically, but I do. I mean, I think 
it is reasonably apparent that I get a lot of freedom to write about what I'm interested in in a way that I find interesting. Any wrist slaps? Comments. <laughs> Maybe don't write about it. Not really. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> hey, coming from somebody who used to have to write at Goldman, I got nothing but wrist slaps and told what not to write and basically had to explain that the sky is blue to make any type of... Yeah, no, I think that they want me... They hired me to do the thing that I do, and they want me to do the thing that I do. And so there's a lot of, I think they've given me a lot of trust to find things that I think are interesting because I think that resonates with an audience. You've been an art critic for 10 years or so now. Do you ever feel like you're getting too far away from the action that you used to be involved with? Oh, yeah, all the time. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I miss it. When I said that I wanted to be a photo trader, for a while, my dream was I would do this job for like six or nine months of the year and then go take a sabbatical in a different finance job every year. But of course, like that doesn't work for a lot of reasons. One is that no one would hire me to do like three months and then go back to write about it. But also my job now is nice. And I think some jobs in finance are less nice. But no, I feel that all the time. I will find myself writing about a particularly beautiful deal. I'm like, man, I'm just doing this. <laughs> I had that actually experience with the Elon Musk thing. It was the first time in a long time. I was like, oh man, being an M&A lawyer is so fun. I feel like we could do a whip round and crowdsource you for three months. We could pay for three months internship and places so you can go in for free and our audience will back you for it. I think that'd be beneficial to the whole ecosystem. I think a lot of places would not want me even if it was free because (laughs) I'd leave them. I don't know. Maybe they would. You'd know too much. At some theoretical level, that would be cool, but it would be a pain. Elon has Walter Isaacson. Sam had Michael Lewis with him. There's a precedent. It's true. Who would I shadow? I don't know. (laughs) I'm sure there's some that would actually enjoy it. And it does seem like there's some unique personalities that would absolutely get a kick out of it. Is writing it for the future? I know you don't know 100%. But is this what you plan on doing for the foreseeable future? I know you said you're never planning on writing a book and you're not planning on doing anything differently. But has that changed? I have no like, immediate plans to write a book. But I'll write a book one day. Oh, bad research on my part. That was in the New York Times. It didn't say that you said it, but it said that... I haven't written a book. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You alluded to it. But no, my book agent would not want me to say that. No, I'll write a book one day. But no, I really like what I'm doing right now. It very much suits my interests and personality and skills. And I had other jobs that I liked a lot of aspects of, but they weren't quite right for me. And this one feels quite right for me. And so I'm not really looking to do anything different. I'll probably one day, I shouldn't say that. It's a podcast. It's exactly what it's for. I was going to say, at some point, Probably I will want to try to have a podcast because people seem to enjoy podcasts and I enjoy talking on podcasts. The goal here is not like I'm going to write so that I get a TV or podcasting or whatever job so I can stop writing, which I think is true of a lot of writers because it's hard or whatever. It's the lily pad. But I really like the writing. This is the thing that I want to do. I think probably it makes sense to do ancillary things. A book is a potential ancillary thing. A podcast is a potential ancillary thing. There's like one or two other things. A three-month sabbatical on a trading desk is a potentially insular thing, not really. But I don't want to stop doing it. <laughs> That's common. <laughs> this is the thing I want to do. Some of those might fit into this, but like you have built such a loyal following and readership. You could do a lot more with those people in terms of the community. And some of that might be delivering podcasts or books or whatever to them. But do you often or at all think about that and how actually I could harness the power of the people that wake up and read me every day? I think about it a little bit. It's a little tricky. I don't know. It's nice to just gratuitously deliver this content to them and have 
to the extent there's a community, be it organic and self-created and not from me. There's also oddness of what I do is partially a subset of the Bloomberg terminal community and partially not. The email goes out for free to people who are not Bloomberg subscribers. And like the Bloomberg terminal community is the Bloomberg community. I don't know. I think sometimes about Oddlots, this other Joe Eisenthal and Tracy Alloway's Bloomberg podcast and vertical generally as a similar thing where they're like a intense subset of the Bloomberg community. And they've done at least one or two. They've done some events. And I think events are fun. When I was at Dealbreaker, Bess and I did a series of Dealbreaker dramatic reading nights where we hired an actor to read funny Dealbreaker posts and comments, excerpts from Ray Dalio's principles and just stuff that was in the Dealbreaker universe. We rented out a bar and hired an actor to read stuff. And it was so funny and such a great community building event. And I think sometimes about what the analog of that would be for money stuff. But I don't know. I also like have kids. I come home. <laughs> I don't need to do too many community building events. I do think that it's nice that the community just exists around the newsletter rather than like being a sort of more contrived thing. This has been an excellent conversation. A lot of fun. Very fun. I agree with you in terms of like there's ancillary things in terms of doing media and writing and whatnot. But something that's emerged recently, and you're an example of this, is you're seeing people who start out with smaller platforms, whether it's blogs or even podcasts and YouTube, and they are using that as the stepping stone to get into the big organization. So like a Bloomberg or seen ESPN do this recently. We've had other examples of it as well. How much do you think that is the future where you're actually seeing less recruiting and sourcing from the traditional ranks? and people moving up and more recruiting from the creator world, the creator economy, where institutions are picking these people off. I was just reading Matt Iglesias this morning, talking about how the journalism career path used to be smarter at a, at like a small town newspaper and you moved to a bigger city newspaper and then you moved to the New York Times. And now you started a blog covering national politics and you moved to the New York Times. And I think for my entire time in media, the old model had been replaced by the model of you start at Gawker or... Gawker in particular became like the feeding ground for big media organizations. And now blogs have declined and creator stuff has increased. And like Bloomberg works with Kyla Scanlon, who's this great financial content YouTube creator. And yeah, I totally think that's the future. I just think it's easier for people now to just go to a place, YouTube or TikTok or whatever, that has a national or international platform. And then they do stuff. And if the stuff gets traction, then like you don't need to work your way up. Obviously, there is something lost there where like the advantage of being trained at a small town newspaper is you learn to report. I find it helpful in my career that I started by doing law and banking so that what I came with when I started writing was not just attitude and style. And there's a risk if the training ground for media is starting a YouTube channel when you're 18 or starting a TikTok when you're 18, then people will come in with less training either in reporting or in the substrate that they're talking about. The upside is that then you come in with the skills that are relevant to building an audience. There's a trade-off there. I don't come in with reporting skills, really. Attitude and style like that. I can call <laughs> people and be like, what's going on here? But I didn't like get a lot of journalism school or whatever, but I came in knowing something about finance. It took me a while to realize on background it had nothing to do with the Zoom call that I was on. But these are things you pick them up one way. Yeah, I try not to ever be in a position where I'm worrying about those things. Part of it is because I'm a columnist. I'm not really in the business of quoting people. And so they feel like, don't quote me. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. It's having my own thoughts. I'm not trained as a reporter, but it's fine because I do a different thing. And I think that that's going to be true of a lot of people who come in from the creator world and into big media organizations. Well, 
Awesome. This has been a pleasure. We are huge fans of your writing, as is everyone that listens to this podcast. Thank you. In the world, I think. So appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. You say much. All right, Dom. That was a lot of fun to me. What about you? Yeah, I had a smile on for most of that conversation, which was very cool. Having been a reader of Matt's for a very long time, it was fun to get to engage with him on a almost personal basis. And the thing that really jumps out to me is not necessarily anything that we talked about specifically, is just he is the person that you read every day. And maybe that's obvious because he has to write thousands of words every day. And so he's difficult to fake. But even when I emailed him initially, he replied in the same way that you hear with likes and ums and all this stuff. Typically, I'm surprised he didn't say, oh, Dom, at the beginning of the email, that kind of stuff. And he's just very, very authentically who you read on a daily basis. And I think that probably goes to why people have such an affinity to his work, because it does feel like a real human at the other end of the typewriter. Yes. Even when you reference having bits, that is something that I think gets extrapolated (laughs) in a negative way where it's hot takes and this is a bit and whatnot. But the best versions of these is they're not really like bits. They're just you. They're your personality and you just lean into it. And I loved that. I think before we hit record, we were having a great conversation. And then after we stopped recording, we had another great conversation. He was exactly as advertised. I will say this was a good example of me taking all of the feedback that all the famous podcasters say, which is just follow your curiosity, ask what's most interesting to you. Don't think about what other people are thinking. I went with that. That's the route that I took. It felt a little bit scrambled at times because these were just things that I was curious about. How did you feel about the flow? Yeah, it felt scrambled to me as well. I was actually thinking, having that exact thought during the conversation, I was trying to think, how would I feel if I was an outside observer listening to this on my commute to work? Would I think this is totally all over the shop and I've got no idea what's going on? Or actually, this sounds like they're having a lot of fun and they're asking questions that they feel curious about. I don't know the answer to that question. We'll have to let people tell us. We will find out because I know people are interested in hearing about Matt. I was not surprised, but I guess in terms of the commentary, it was mostly what I would have expected. But I thought with the SPAC stuff or some of the other categories, he might have stronger viewpoints. But I think he is somewhat of a defender of finance in many ways, where it's not overly cynical. It truly is. Let's take an honest assessment of this and throw some humor around the realities of it, too. I only grew to appreciate that more over the course of the conversation. Something like I already knew, but it just ingrained in me more. I think I was surprised that he jumped in on that question and was like, I'm not sure that that's true anymore. I think it was true at one point. And like, I think he ended up saying that it probably was true, but he does feel slightly differently about that. I think what you said is right. And you see this when bad things happen, it tends to start out with a reasonable motive. The first act that they pursue has some logic behind it. And then they end up down a route that maybe they didn't intend to start with, but they feel like there's no way out. And he's such a good job of being like, well, this could be how it started. He made the point. This is just my own thoughts. I'm just dreaming up enough logical scenarios or trying to make logical scenarios out of the things that I read in the newspaper. And I think that comes across. Do you think the bigger benefit that he provides is his humor or his assessment of the really mundane? He's a translator of super mundane legal docs, but he's also this humorous analyzer of those things. Where do you put more value of those two categories? I think they're one and the same thing. If you think back to your best teachers, What a cop-out answer. No, it's my actual answer. If you were to push me on which side of the coin I would weigh more heavily, I think it's the breaking down the jargon, actually explaining. I've learned tons of stuff by reading him just on like how things actually work. And the humor is a bonus because I probably remember it more because it just sticks in my memory because he said it in this way and it made me laugh. But actually, like I do now understand what he was talking about. 
and I don't know, it goes back, my favorite teachers had the same thing and then they could explain it in a way that wasn't written down in the textbook and it would come in a delivery that either made me laugh or made me just think more around the subject. And so, yeah, that's my answer. I don't care if it's cop out. What's very interesting to me is I, as you know, can get annoyed that people don't provide nuance around things anymore and people simplify things. And in some ways, he's simplifying what's in legal docs. It's not really simplifying. It's just translating. And that's probably the better term. But he rarely ever gets attacked, at least from what I've seen, for misinterpreting those things. And it's very easy to misinterpret them or to simplify something and be like, no, you're missing a big point here. So I actually agree with you, although I don't think that gets him the audience. The thing that supercharges the audience is the humor. Yeah. And part of it, I was going to ask him, but I think there's a big crossover here to some podcasts that we've talked to, particularly No Laying Up in terms of like their inside jokes and their bits. And his content, I'd say, is fairly inaccessible to begin with. And like I was reading on the New York Times article in the comment section about him, where a few people mentioned, someone told me that I should be subscribing to Matt's writing. So I did. And for a few months, they just came in my inbox and I never read them. And then one day I just decided that I should start reading this stuff and I started to get hooked. And now I just can't miss. And I think that's part of it. They're really long. And some of the jokes, everything's security's fraud. The first time you read it, he does tend to link back to stuff, but it's not exactly like, oh no, now I get it. You take some time to get into the flow and feel like an insider. And I think that stuff engenders loyalty, but the trade-off is that it's not really easy for someone to pick up and be like, oh, perfect. We've talked to Axios in the past and they make their stuff really accessible for someone that has never read their stuff before, where he's on the other side of the spectrum. But you're more likely to stick with him. And once he's got your trust, then you will follow him into all these esoteric areas that he takes you. And I think probably my personal preference, but there definitely is a trade-off to that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think he gets you. And once he gets you, you're in. But it's this authentic thing that keeps coming across. Yeah. My biggest bugbear is that in the UK, we get his stuff early evening. And it's really hard. And then you'll get extra emails and say, by the time the next morning rolls around, when you really want to read it and spend the first 20 minutes of your day just digesting what Matt's got to say, it comes in at the wrong time. So I almost need to auto send it back to myself the following morning. I love that he has basically carved out this category where when you see certain things hit the tape, you say to yourself, I can't wait for Matt Levine's interpretation of this. And that's such a symbolic thing that I think many people probably strive to have. And he clearly has achieved. And I love that. I think it's stronger than that as well. It's not even like I want to hear what he's got to say. I need to know what I should be thinking about this topic. And he's the guy that I trust to tell me what I should be thinking about it. And there are a few people in that camp in different topics or verticals. And he's definitely there in finance for a lot of people. Are you worried about him as a podcast competitor? Because I will say... He has a voice made for 1960s through 1990s FM radio, disc jockey. I don't know. You put that talent next to that voice, it's kind of scary. It's got gravitas, yeah. No, look, we're positive somewhere around here. I think I'd be all for it. He should definitely do more with the audience that he's got. That's my overriding feeling. I kind of like the fact that he's, oh, you know what? I really like what I do. I don't really want too many things to get in the way of it. I lead a nice life. So yeah, would I like to? Yeah, sure. But I'm not fighting to make it happen. Amen. Awesome. Any other closing thoughts? No, that was it. A very cool episode for us personally, I think. Um, I hope it wasn't too scrambled for those listening. But if it was, then please send your feedback to Matt. Yes, please send it to me. My only closing thought is it has me thinking about super complex topics, the translation of those topics, but with like a humorous tilt to them, because I think that makes it a little bit more digestible. There are people that just translate what things mean, especially in the legal category, that it doesn't really have any 
juice or spice to it. I think that's an interesting little space. The more complex the topic, the more it can benefit from a translator with a humorous tilt. Yeah, actually, that brings up an interesting point about I like people like Matt, who you can't look at and say, if you do this, that and the other, you'll get somewhere close to what they're doing. You can't. And he talked about, I think it benefited me having been in these different industries before. But even if you are, you need his humor, his ability to break down the stuff. He's clearly very smart. When you can't see a path to even how they got, most things in hindsight are obvious. His journey and what he does is not even obvious in hindsight. I think it's just someone who's got a gift and more power to him. More power to him. That's right. Awesome. All right. (laughs) Well, it is Labor Day over here. Dom, we are going to celebrate with a super long weekend. I don't know what you'll be doing over in the UK, but I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's properly foggy, misty, and a nice little hazy weather day. Oh, that's very kind of you. It's getting cold already. You know what? On Monday, I'll probably be holding this ship that is closest together single-handedly. I'll be blocking the holes, making the sail still upright. Just know across Wall Street, the Tuesday after Labor Day is this big hoorah. We got one last sprint into the end of the year. Make it strong. Everybody is revved up. People got new shoes on. They're all tan and happy back from vacation. It's a very, very intense moment. And then it dies down over the next two days. And then it's just rinse and repeat. It is the season. September is here. I'm surprised to hear that Americans take holiday. That's a novelty to me. But I hope you enjoy the semblance of holiday that you seem to have over this weekend. So yeah, good luck there. Hot shots at the end. Wouldn't expect anything else. All right. We will see you next week on Making Media. See you then. See you then.